Hi, this is Mandy. This week's episode contains descriptions of homicide, violence, and loss, including conversations around crime scene cleanup. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 43, titled Surviving Violent Loss with Dr. Jan Canty. Dr. Canty is a psychologist of nearly 40 years, and in 1985, her spouse was murdered. Though she did not speak about it for years, she now makes it her life mission to help other so-called homicide survivors and their close friends who don't know how to help. She hosts a podcast entitled Domino Effect of Murder, wrote a book called A Life Divided, and speaks internationally when given the chance. She's currently working on her second book, A Survival Guide for Coping with the Homicide of Your Loved One. As mentioned, this conversation is heavy, although rich with compassion and insight on how survivors of violent loss can find healing. Well, Dr. Jan Canty, welcome to my show today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I am just going to dive right in. You are a psychologist and an author. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your work and what it is that you do and why this is such a great conversation they're going to hear today? Well, um, I did not set out to specialize in this, but my life circumstances were such that it steered me into the direction of helping other so-called homicide survivors, people who are grieving over the murder of someone close to them, not necessarily a biological relative, but my husband being murdered sort of shoved me in that direction. And as a result of that, fast forward many years later, I now have a podcast called The Domino Effect of Murder where I interview people that have been either impacted directly by homicide or that's their life calling, such as a homicide detective. I also have a book out called Life Divided, which is more like a true crime memoir and one in the works called Coping with the Traumatic Death of a Loved One that incorporates not just homicide, but suicide and all of the steps starting from the death notification through the trial, through crime scene cleanup, all the way down to parole hearings many, many years in the future. And I've had help in doing that. I've interviewed about 12 experts in their various fields. Like I I found a funeral director who's handled the murder of her niece. So I'm trying to, you know, get on these experts to help me. And they've been very generous with their time. People don't even know me, actually. And that'll be hopefully coming out in the spring if I can get it in and, and all the hurdles jumped over. So here I am today and I'm trying to help others with the grief process. Also through, I have a private Facebook group I administer called Homicide Survivors and thrivers. It's like a cork came out of the bottle and I was mom on this for 30 years. And now, you know, at my age, I want to funnel all I can into helping others because there's still way too few resources out there for people who are grieving over a murder of someone they care about. Well, and that's why I'm so thrilled to have you here, just because that's such a unaddressed area of loss. We see so much death in our daily entertainment world and on Mm -hmm. the news and all these things. And I feel like we're just completely desensitized to it. Can you speak to that? Oh, definitely. (laughs) How much time you have? Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Hollywood perpetuates myths. And they bypass the fallout. Those are my two biggest gripes. Just as an example, uh, by perpetuating myths, they would have it appear that women are in most danger in alleys or empty parking garages or elevators in office buildings when, in fact, 
statistics by the FBI and others clearly show that they're far more likely to be killed in their house. And they're far more likely to be killed by their intimate partner than any place. But Hollywood doesn't reflect that. And as far as homicide survivors go, what does it show in terms of the long term aftermath of homicide on those left to grieve? If, if they're even dealing with the family at all. I mean, they might be seen at the trial crying, and that's about the end of the story. And really, it's a life-changing event. It shapes your life from that point forward. And that is a total narrative that's missing from the Hollywood versions of it and podcasts, I might add. I I love that you mentioned podcasts because we have serial being the most obvious, right? That there's this fallout in the storytelling, but there's so much detail that can never be included. But the personal story of the people affected by the great loss or by the homicide are almost left to the side because there's nothing glamorous about it. There's nothing beautiful in it. There's nothing easy about it. And you have this storyline that you need to sell, whether it's an entertainment or podcast, whatever that is. And it's really uncomfortable to include the voice of the person that doesn't have any answers when all you want to do is resolve the storyline. And that uncomfortableness folds over into the reactions that real homicide survivors get from real members of the community. And it Mm -hmm. adds to the pain that they have. I mean, there's the stereotype that if you lose someone to homicide, everybody gushes support, not only in the immediate, but over the long haul. And that's just not true. Right. It's not even close to true because the immediate discomfort of a grief that's attached to, let's say, an illness or something that, you know, quote unquote, you saw coming, even that kind of a discomfort is difficult to know that there was violence involved. I think I've, I've witnessed people trying to figure out their own rationale for it or trying to say, well, don't worry, you have someone to blame. So you're going to heal faster. Can you speak to that? The idea that blame makes the grief process easier in this instance? I don't think it does. And I think that is painful when people assume that and project that onto a survivor. And that often takes another form of law enforcement and a criminal justice system where they will perpetuate this idea of, quote, closure once the person's arrested, tried and convicted. Like, well, job done. You're going to be whole again. And that's BS. That's because people want a Hollywood ending and there isn't a Hollywood ending. In many cases, in fact, it's not until the person is led away to prison, if they're even caught, because 40 percent of the time they're not. But even if they're caught and led away to prison, that's often when the grief begins, because they've been so focused on catching the person going to trial and being told to show up in court if they're allowed even in the courtroom and be very stoic and all of that. And and then they're waiting to see what the outcome is, that they're on pins and needles the whole time. And then when the trial is over and the person's led away, then the the roof falls in and they're able to start grieving. But it by no means means that they're whole again and that it's over. That's actually where it begins. There's definitely fewer distractions at that point. There's no problem to solve. There's no formula to finish and then have a result. So you're definitely, you're right. It's that open-ended, okay, and now what? Yes. What in your story, how did the okay and now what evolve into what you do now? Um, In my situation, my husband was murdered by two people over money. That's that's a quick condensation of the real facts, but he owed in their eyes money and he didn't have it. So they clubbed him to death with a baseball bat and they were high at the time, which may be the reason behind why they dismembered him. And then they drove his body parts north to northern Michigan and buried them with an accomplice. And that was a good thing in the long run because the accomplice turned them in. 
And had it not been for that, I don't know that police would have ever resolved what happened. But they were both put on trial and both convicted. One got the maximum, one got the minimum. And the one that got the maximum, John Carl Fry, died while incarcerated. I was told by one person it was diabetes, another person by hep C. In either case, it was a medical reason that he died. And the other one got out very quickly, Dawn Marie Spence. And she was out before I could even sell my house. There was a lot of complications following that. Just a handful would be that my husband left me in debt, which I didn't know. $30,000 in 1985, which is twice to three times that now. I had to be tested for HIV because he was with this drug abusing prostitute and HIV had just been discovered that year. So I had to undergo testing for seven years. The media was relentless. I mean, there was complications everywhere I turned. So in the trial too, the legal process. So that put my grief on hold for a long time. And eventually I ended up leaving Detroit altogether because the media was just not going to let me alone. And I did not know why until many years later, it turns out that one of the reporters wanted to write a book. So he kept fanning the flames of it. So I left town, changed my name, changed my career and did not speak of it for 30 years until a few years back. That fact that you held that to yourself for 30 years is indicative of so many things. We could go down that rabbit hole. What? What was it that shifted and made you decide, okay, it's time to start unpacking this and talking about it publicly? Well, it was specific to actually three events that happened in the same week. I was at work and we had a coworker go missing. And people, of course, were all chattering about that. And some came up to me and go, could you imagine? Because my husband was missing before, you know, for two weeks before they found his body. So I'd been down that path. And people were coming up to me at work and saying, can you imagine what that was like having someone in your family missing? And I'm automatically going, oh, no, I can't imagine that because that was my go-to. You know, it bothered me that I had this pat answer for everything and I was beginning to feel like I was leading a double life almost. Well, that same week, we had a lecture at work by a physician on something. I don't remember what the topic was, but as an aside, he made the comment that people who live with a secret for years pay a price physically. And I thought, oh, that's not good. And I went back to my office to sort of dwell on those two points, the missing coworker and what he had said in the talk. And I glanced over at this shelf of books that were my favorite books in my office that all pertain to people that had been subjected to some kind of traumatic event in their life and come out on top of it and wrote about it. And I got to thinking, you know, if they can do it, maybe I should do it too. So I gingerly started going in reverse, which was very difficult and started very carefully and selectively talking about it with some new friends of mine that I'd made in this new state that I moved to. And much to my surprise, they were very kind and non-judgmental and supportive. And from then on, it just grew to where I am today, where I'm quite comfortable talking about it. I imagine it would be a very different response had it been you know, a year or two after losing your husband compared to 30 years later from the new people who are finding out about your loss, as opposed to the, you know, fresh loss people are attempting to comfort and- And careful. And careful, right. So how did that change what you offered as you moved through telling your story from this new season in this new state? You're right. I think it did help that it had been so many years since it had happened. And in the intervening years, I'd remarried and adopted two children. So with all that water under the bridge, I think they felt safer, but still they were not intrusive. They did not ask nosy questions. They were very appropriate. It encouraged me to keep talking about it and eventually creep out of the hole I'd been in. And then I also had a relative 
come up who does crime scene cleanup for a living come to me with the idea of the podcast and i'm like well i don't know about this i don't know anything about podcasting but i found much to my surprise that podcasters are very generous with their time and willing to help in particular i want to give a heads up to javier leiva who had the podcast called pretend i think he still does he was very supportive and encouraged me and so that doubled it because then i started meeting other people who'd been in my shoes and it was such a breath of fresh air to realize hey they'd been through this and they know what i'm talking about and i learned a great deal from them as well because every homicide is unique and it kept me from generalizing from my own experience to others and i've learned so much from them in the 2 years that i've had the show Hey guys, Mandy here. I just wanted to take a quick minute and invite you to listen to this excerpt from this premium episode with Josh Scott. He's a pastor at Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. When I started grieving so outwardly, I realized the expression of my faith had to change. And what scared me the most was knowing that was a loss in and of itself. But connecting with Josh is one of those things that brought me back to the forefront of my loss and my faith and realized that here at the intersection, shame doesn't have to tell the story. Listen now for Josh's thoughts on exactly that. I think what humans need is like to be able to be healed from shame. And so much of what religious context ends up putting back on people, it's just like a shame cycle where you just keep being dragged through the mud shame-wise and you're the problem. It's not that the system is the problem or the way you were taught it was the problem or that we think this thing is a thing in, it, in this way and it's not, this is not how it works. No, it's you, it's your fault. So when people are already struggling, what do we do? We meet them and instead of seeing them and, and acknowledging their pain and seeking to walk with them, we just heap shame on them. That interview with Josh Scott will be live on August 21st. So make sure by then you are a premium subscribing member to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart so you don't miss a thing. Having a community that has experienced something so similar, like you said, it's all different. Everyone is its own unique story, but to have that community around you to embrace, to understand without you having to explain so much. What did that feel like? Oh, I can't even put it into words. It was like I could exhale. I, I just felt my tension go down. It's like I could finish their sentences and they could finish mine. It was the first time I'd been around people, quote, like me, Mm. And I found that I admired them and I appreciated them. And it was very reinforcing that I was on the right track and I needed to continue doing this, even though it's very difficult to find guests for the show. It's something that I wanted to work at and uh, have worked at. And I hope it was beneficial for them as well, because in many of my guests, it was the first time they had spoken about the death. So it was beneficial both ways. That's such a significant gift to offer of yourself as well. Because like you said, it's not easy to go through this internally on your own, but even to then start talking about it and essentially reopening things that have felt closed or resolved for a long time. Not that there really is any level of closure. I'm with you. I believe it's a total myth. However, sometimes we experience closure in certain ways and to be willing to reopen that conversation, that is a tremendously generous thing to do for other people. Yeah, they've been very generous with their time. And 
willingness to talk about painful things, I try very hard to help them feel comfortable and respected. It's not a salacious podcast. It is not one aimed to, quote, entertain by any stretch of the imagination. It is tended to be educational and informative. And I recoil at any Hollywood movie or podcast or book or whatever that does the opposite, that, that makes entertainment or light or like there's podcasts out there that will, you know, blend wine and crime or my favorite murder or talk about what's funny. And I'm like, there's nothing funny about this. And, you know, I don't, I can't even watch that stuff anymore. I can't listen to it anymore because it just gets my blood going. There's definitely a different layer of coping mechanism that goes along with loss when you have experienced it firsthand, especially traumatic losses versus kind of circling around it or being removed to the point where it feels like entertainment to a degree. You touched on this and I want to ask you when you are interacting with someone because you've experienced it yourself, how does interacting with people who have survived homicide change? How is it different than you would interact with someone who say lost their mom or who lost a job or who is grieving an unmet expectation? It's a different level. So how would you approach differently? I think if somebody lost somebody from natural causes or a loss of a job, I would you know, certainly console them and feel bad for them, but it would not have the depth of understanding and connectedness that I would feel from somebody who lost somebody to murder or suicide for that matter, because a traumatic death just shakes your world. It is complicated on so many levels, financially, physically, legally, and so forth that you don't see with natural grief. And that isn't to make light of natural grief. I mean, I've lost my parents through death because of illness. And that's not easy. I know what that's like, but there wasn't a trial and you don't, I didn't become the poster child for crime in my neighborhood because of their natural deaths. It's different. And you don't see it reflected. For example, if you go to the grocery store and try to pick up a sympathy card, you're not going to find one that deals with murder. I'm sorry. Your husband was murdered and stole, stolen from you right? for two weeks. Occasionally I've seen them for suicide though. That's starting but I've never seen one for homicide. And it's like this invisible problem that exists and that it affects a lot of people. I mean, for every homicide in every country, it's been estimated that eight to 10 people are deeply and immediately impacted. Well, that's a lot of people when you multiply it in the United States by 20,000 murders a year, and yet they're ignored and there isn't resources for them like there should be. It's easier to find a home for a stray pet than it is to help somebody who's grappling with homicide. So what would you say are the areas where we need to do more research and show, like what kind of support would you love to see come into the world beyond what you're creating? I would love it if researchers would ask some good questions to start off with. I mean, if you tap in serial murder, you're going to find tons of articles. But here's a, for instance, I had a young lady on my show who was a sole survivor of familiacide, meaning that there's murder within the family. When she was four years old, her mother, for reasons only known to her mother, instructed her to go upstairs and wake up her older brother, Patrick. And she did as requested, pulled back the covers and found him with a slit throat that her mother had murdered him. Of course, she's removed from the family. The mother's convicted and put in prison. She bounces around from pillar to post and ended up in a psych hospital because of suicidal tendencies and had to figure out on her own how to make sense of all this and did, by the way. She's a successful person. But 
I, in my attempts to do the introduction for her on my podcast, tried to look up research related to familiacide and could not find anything, let alone the sole survivor of a familiacide. Why are these questions not being asked? Or what is the long-term impact on a family who's lost somebody to homicide if it turns out in the long run that the person that was convicted, in fact, is innocent? The media will show them, go back and, and show old movies or old clips of them leaving the courtroom feeling victorious that the person's been finally found and convicted. And now they find out that they're innocent, that the prosecutor played some funny games and got the person who was innocent convicted. What does that do to the person's head who lost the, they've been re-victimized, but right. there's no research on that, yeah. let alone the family of the person who was wrongly convicted. There are so many unanswered questions. So research would be one thing I would love to see. Mm -hmm. I would also love to see more discussions like what we're doing and movies that portray the reality and dispel some of the myths that are perpetuated. The re-victimization of someone who has lost a family member or friend to homicide is perpetual. It really does feel perpetual. When I was in high school, a friend of ours was killed by her sister's boyfriend and she was very close to my brother. And it is something that has been, I mean, 20 some odd years constantly on my mind. Anytime I meet someone with her name, it comes to mind. Uh Even a thematically similar circumstance of someone else's death, I'm brought back to that moment. I'm brought back to what I visualized When I read the newspaper about what happened to our friend Mm -hmm. and those things, you're right. They're never addressed and they're not touched on in the sense of, I just don't think people know that that's worth looking at, but that's easily something that can transform into a mental unwellness. Right. Just this morning, I had a conversation with the president of the American Biorecovery Association over my objections. And that's a great organization, ABRA, American Biorecovery Association, if you're ever in need of crime scene cleanup. Hopefully, you never will be. But if you are, contact them because they are the only organization out there that screens biorecovery companies or what we call crime scene cleanup companies, because I'm appalled at what is put on TikTok and YouTube of before and after postings of crime scene cleanups. What does that do to the family who is related to the person that they're cleaning up from? I don't know how the public can look at this as entertainment and absorb it and support these companies. There's one in Florida, which I'm tempted to name, who's at the forefront of this and they make it reality entertainment. It isn't. That's a life of somebody that was extinguished in a terrible way. And we don't need to see the after effects in an entertaining shock value kind of situation. And one thing that the public can do is stop looking at that. This morbid curiosity is painful. And that's just one way it surfaces. Another way is driving by the victim's house and taking pictures, posting them on the Internet. And it has a real world fallout with the value of the home when it goes to be resold forever in a day because it gets posted to websites that you can buy this information from. I mean, it just goes on and on in terms of how many ways it shows up. And I think it accentuates the gulf, the the chiasm between the viewer and the actual victims. You could be one at any time. It's an equal opportunity club. And you have to stop and ask yourself, how would I feel if that was the crime scene cleanup of my parents? Would I be looking at this? And what about the comments that are posted about those TikTok videos or about those YouTube videos? How would I feel if that was my child's room that was being shown? When it comes down to it isn't so funny or entertaining anymore. 
I'm personally completely appalled that there are no legal repercussions to None. that level of invasion of privacy. Nope. I, I'm racking nope. my brain with just shock right now. <laughs> well, it behooves the consumer to put that in the contract. And that's right. what I would recommend people do is to state in the co- first, check them out. Are they on Abra? Because Abra, American Bio Recovery Association will not allow that happen. And if they're not, then they can state in the contract, you will not, except for insurance purposes, take or release any photos or video coverage at any time. But consumers don't know and they're vulnerable and they're in a state of shock. So they don't know. And they think, well, well, just like they don't know that they have the right to refuse media who bounds on their door. Right. Which is why I'm writing the second book to get people to understand what their rights are and what to do about some of these things. Because when you're vulnerable and in a state of shock, there are people just are predatory. Yeah. Whether it's a journalist or whether it's a crime scene cleanup company or funeral directors, too. You don't you don't have to succumb to that if you have a heads up or a, a friend that can pull you back from the brink and go, no, 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 I know better. This is what you should do. This is one of those instances where normally I encourage people not to center themselves in the narrative of the griever. Don't say, well, what if this happened to me? But in this instance, it seems almost irresponsible not to say, what would I be doing if this happened to me in the sense of that consumption side? The, like you right. mentioned earlier, the people you shared with didn't ask a lot of invasive questions. Whether or not that's because they could turn around and Google it is irrelevant. The fact is they recognized this is not how would I want to be treated? It almost feels as though there is a perceived tenderness on behalf of someone when you're face to face with them that I think that maybe we don't know how to express with other forms of grief. Hey, if you have not yet chosen to become a premium subscriber to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart, it's only $4.99 a month, and you'll gain access to so many exclusive interviews, resources, meditations, Q&A sessions, coaching information, all kinds of great things, including this brilliant episode with Josh Scott coming up on the 21st. This is another excerpt of that conversation where he's talking about shoulding and how we can move through our losses, with our faith, without shooting all over ourselves. I know I should read my Bible. I know I should pray. And my first response is maybe you shouldn't. If those things are sources of pain, maybe you take a break and maybe you find other practices. And maybe, you know, I'm one of those pastors who maybe one of the few ones will say, maybe you never need to pick up the Bible again. And that's the healthiest thing for you. There's no shame in that. Christians existed without the Bible for hundreds of years. You can be okay. There are other ways. If, if, if God is not so big that God can communicate with you outside of words printed on a page, then perhaps we're all doing something that isn't worth our time. Anyway. <laughs> right? Hearing a pastor validate the things that I felt were really important for me in my grief process was a godsend, no pun intended. So If you are in a position where your faith is interrupting your ability to heal, or maybe you just can't figure out which direction to head at the intersection of grief and faith, you need to become a premium subscriber to Restorative Grief right now so you can hear the rest of Josh Scott's episode next week. I appreciate you calling out just the way it has been monetized and it's being 
spread. Exploited. Yes. But there are things people can do. And I would recommend that if you know somebody who is suffering because of a homicide in their loved one, and again, it need not be a biological relative, you can still support them. You can say things like, you know, I'm at a loss for words. I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes. I can only imagine how terrible it must be. I'm so sorry. And rather than saying, call me if you need something, and they're really doing badly, you can say, you know, I can see you're struggling. You know what I want to do? I want to come over and cut your grass this week, or I want to run your kids back and forth to baseball practice, or I'm going to run your cat to the vet, whatever it is that you think needs being done, because guaranteed they're not going to ask you to do that. They might need it, but they're not in a place where they can even prioritize, let alone express it. And they're not willing to do that. Most people don't want to impose on other people. So that's something else you can do. And the third thing I would recommend is put a a reminder in your calendar, in your phone calendar, perhaps, and call them from time to time, maybe six to four to eight months later and say, how you doing? Because you're going to get a gusher report of support from people when it first breaks. But I'll guarantee you two, three months down the road, unless there's some news development, people go back to their business and you're left picking up the pieces alone. And that's when it's most meaningful to have someone say, hey, you don't have to answer me, but I just want to let you know I'm thinking about you today. For example, I have a friend whose son was murdered at the Pulse. And every June, I put a reminder in my phone to text him or call him about the loss of his son at the Pulse nightclub because for him, it goes on. Yeah. I love that you brought that up. I think, and this might be the last question I can ask because we're running out of time, but the mass homicides that we experience, like the Pulse nightclub attack or any other instance where multiple people are killed. I'm thinking too specifically of that music concert in Las Vegas. Las Vegas. It was such a deeply jarring experience that in those moments, we see it, I think, from a different perspective as a culture. I -hmm. think those as traumatic as they are, Mm -hmm. and they tend to unify us, Mm -hmm. but only for a short season. How How would you recommend encouraging people who can experience that level of empathy and say, oh my gosh, that was not okay. And say, hey, pull that empathy and attention toward yourself when you see other people experiencing loss. I actually interviewed some woman who was in that particular mass homicide situation. And I think one of the things that you can do is many times, not always, but many times you'll find in a mass homicide situation, one or two or maybe more causes that people have instigated and contribute to them. And in her case, what she ended up doing, her last name is Mellon and her husband, it was their first anniversary and he was killed. He literally took the bullet for her, literally, as he was hugging her and he went down and she felt the bullet hit his body and she fell as well. And she ended up raising funds to put shades on elementary school windows in her community, Big Sandy, Tennessee, to prevent them from being killed by an outside perpetrator. And she raised enough money to you know, improve cameras and so on to make these kids safer. It was her calling. That's how she wanted to help. There are many other ways that people can come up with that they often want to make something good come out of a tragedy. So find out what those ways are. Or if you see them on a television show or a YouTube event, give them a heads up and say, boy, I appreciated your interview. I mean, it, it means a lot. And I think the further out from the tragedy, the more it means because they can rightly assume people forget and don't care anymore. Right. I think it's interesting that you said that too, because I try really hard to make sure 
everyone understands there is no purpose needed to validate your pain. You don't have to transform your loss into this life altering new career path or generous offering or a foundation erected in someone's name. And yet the value of who you become internally is where you can find home again in a different way. I just That's really well said. I like that. Oh, thank you. I it's something that it's so triggering to me when I see other grief coaches or supporters saying, "We can just transform your mindset or we can transform how you internalized what's going on so that you can see that there's purpose in what you've experienced and no. or meaning." And that's just That's a big task. (laughs) It's a big task. And not everybody's up to it. And I think sometimes it's a very subtle way of victim blaming. It's like Mm. the implication is if you don't do this, nothing's wrong with you. Right. That's one of the things I love that you said that because I've experienced a lot of grievers say, well, they're wondering why I'm still grieving because I haven't done anything differently with my life, but I hurt all the time. And your story is the absolute perfect example of, of course, we hurt all the time. Mm-hmm. Why would we not hurt all the time? If I mm-hmm. broke my leg and years later it hurts when it rains, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's an after effect. Yes. You're not yes. mad at me for having my leg still in pain when it rains. Why Very, would you yes. be mad at me now? So That's right. That's right. Very true. I mean, I went back and visited my husband's grave last year and it still hurts. I mean, it's been 30 something years and it and I'm happily married and my kids are doing great and so on, but it doesn't mean it's gone and I think everybody has their own pathway, and I hope that people can find a way to at least ratchet down the pain, the acuteness of it, and the physical aftermath and find their floor again. I mean, if they've done that, they're a success. I love that you said that. That's a perfect note for us to wrap up on. But before we go, you mentioned at the beginning, your book is hopefully coming out this spring. You've got your Facebook group. Is there any one last resource you want to refer people to? And of course, it'll all be in the show notes, but. Okay. I've tried to condense everything into one place, make it simple. And except for the private Facebook group, you have to go on Facebook for that. But everything else is on my website, which is www.jancantyphd.com. Stay tuned for spring. The book will be out and then my tentative title is Coping with the Traumatic Loss of Loved One. So good. Thank you so much, Jan, for being with me today. And Thank you for having me, Mandy. I appreciate vulnerable. it. This has been, ugh, this is a beautiful conversation. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 43 of Restorative Grief. Dr. Canty's upcoming book is going to be a meaningful and brilliant insight and support tool for those in need of advice. As a survivor of violent loss in my own history, I am deeply grateful for the courage of survivors like Jan starting these conversations time and again, simply for the benefit of others. And I'll say it one last time. This week's episode included excerpts from one of my favorite all-time conversations on this show. So next week, I'm releasing two episodes, but the interview with Josh Scott is only available to premium subscribers. So if you want to hear all the good stuff this compassionate human has to say about the intersection of loss and faith, subscribe today because it's only $4.99 a month. That is such a small cost for the huge investment in your process of healing And by supporting this show financially, you are also supporting grief literacy and coaching resources for any listener who can't access other resources in their life at this time. So thank you for being a friend of the show. 
Take a minute to leave that five-star review on Apple Podcasts and help any other listeners find us and these resources. And find me on social media and give me a little shout because I love hearing from listeners. And one last thing, please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thank you.